the screen for Dr. Bill. I've been playing with the technology in this room, but I, um, I think I may have messed something up. So, here we go. So, um, Dr. Chaffee invited Dr. Billet this morning for Grand Rounds, and so Dr. Chaffee has the privilege of um, introducing Dr. Billet. Um, so it's a it's a pleasure to introduce um, Amy. I've known Amy at least by phone for more than twenty years, and we see each other uh, intermittently at various meetings. She's a New Englander, grew up in Rhode Island, went to Yale as an undergrad, Harvard Medical School, briefly tried the West Coast, as all good East Coast people should do, and did her uh, residency at the University of Washington, and then returned to Boston Children's and Dana-Farber for fellowship, and has been there since that time. Clinically, she began her career with a focus on recurrent ALL and brain tumors, when in a few years her focus changed to lymphoma and particularly Hodgkin's disease, and, and that is um, the Dr. Billet I know best. Um, for 20 years, she's been part of a really important clinical research consortium that's dedicated to maximizing outcome of individuals with Hodgkin's lymphoma by minimizing treatment and preventing late effects. And today's grand rounds will actually address some of those issues. Her non-clinical interests since, again, the mid-1990s have been on designing systems of care to improve quality and reduce error with an institutional focus on the electronic medical record, including the ordering of chemotherapy, and an institutional and national focus on the prevention of central line infections. As a founding member of the Children's Hospital Association National Quality Improvement Collaborative to reduce central line infections. And she has an extensive publication list about these interests. She has served in the Children's Oncology Group and the administration of the American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology and is the current president of that organization. And last but certainly not least, she has been a long-term colleague, always available for consultation about patients and about life, and one of several individuals at Dana-Farber whose support, for which I will always be grateful, helped me sustain the pediatric oncology program here a number of years ago. Dr. Billet. Drop one thing, push the wrong thing, please forgive me. <laughs> to Sarah, I want to thank you for the introduction. Um, the great thing about your phone calls and emails about patients is they put me on my toes. Sarah asked me questions that are the kind that were, oh, I was in the last five papers, and I thought about it, and then I found another paper, and then we discussed some more. And um, perhaps not good for us, but perhaps good for the kids. We've had any number of conversations while each of us were driving home as we continue to discuss, so truly a collegial relationship. So, um, so it's an honor to be here today. Um, I try to think, you know, like what about Hodgkin's lymphoma is interesting, and it's, what people don't think of is like, oh, the oncologists, they just want to cure more patients. 
But the real question is, when you cure a lot of patients, that in and of itself is a challenge. And that's what I hope to discuss with you um, in the coming, however long it is. And by the way, someone should remind me if I'm getting close to the end and I haven't finished. <laughs> And also, please feel free to interrupt with questions. It's a lot more fun when it's interactive rather than just me filming off. So I have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. As almost always, with probably almost every pediatric discussion of any sort, is there will be discussion of drugs for which there is no known pediatric indication, because almost all standard chemotherapy was developed long before people did pediatric studies of the drugs themselves. They just did studies with drugs. So, um, so I'm going to start with a couple of patients who are actually, I no longer follow because I finally decided from a survivorship perspective, somewhere between 30 and 35, I just have to confess to say, I don't even know I can take a good history anymore. But these are both patients who I have cared for over the years. One is a now 41-year-old young woman who was diagnosed with Hodgkin's, I'm trying to read up there, that's not so good. Look here, I can actually read. <laughs> who was diagnosed in Hod with Hodgkin's when, in 1989. She had what was called pathologic stage 3A Hodgkin's lymphoma because back then, if we were gonna treat with radiation, which is a local treatment, we actually had to do a splenectomy to look for disease because you had to know if there was disease there and thus you had to do that before you could play the treatment. Um, she received standard treatment that was about to disappear. She was the last patient I know of treated with radiation only at our program and she got extended field radiation, which means if your Hodgkin's is here, your radiation goes from here to here to here, so, and with standard high doses of the drug. So I saw her many years. I finally convinced her, you know, you're at risk of breast cancer. You have to start getting mammograms. And she would consistently say to me, you know what? I could not have handled chemotherapy in high school. I'm so glad I just got radiation, which is not exactly how I was feeling. Um, so in 2012, unfortunately, she presented with a large neck node and was found to have stage something complicated, da 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 da, three head and neck carcinoma with a, when the primary was in her left tonsil. That was treated with resection. Normally they would have given radiation, but they could not. And almost five years later, she's currently doing well from that perspective. Shortly after she got through the acute surgery and recovery, she developed breast cancer. Um, that was treated with resection and tamoxifen. Consistent to herself, she declined chemotherapy, although it was recommended. Um, and so now, she's working full time. She has chronic dysphagia, which impacts her every day in life. She's still at risk of breast cancer, developing new second tumors. Her thyroid is fine, but even this many years later, it's still at risk of becoming thyroid insufficiency. And she's also at risk of early onset cardiovascular disease. She's due for her colonoscopy. She hasn't said yes yet. Then, in slight contrast, I have another patient who I took care of for many years. He's now 46. In 1994, he had clinical stage 2A bulky Hodgkin lymphoma. And he didn't have to have a screen out because by then we knew we were going to treat with combined modality chemotherapy. So he got a regimen that was a research regimen of the time called VAMP-COP. And then he got involved field radiation. So involved field, now you just say, here are the lumps. I'm going to treat the lumps themselves and we're gonna give radiation in lower doses to those areas. And the rationale for that is, chemo goes everywhere the blood goes, so you no longer worry about tiny little spots you don't know about. So his late effects have been more limited. Um, he had some, he had um, alkylator chemotherapy as part of his chemo. The dose was low enough that it was not supposed to affect his fertility, but at the time, 
uh, not immediately, but a couple of years later, he was found to have azospermia. When he got married and wanted to have kids, he got retested, and now they were able to find he had oligospermia. So with ICSI, he was able to, he and his wife had biologic children, and they had twins. Um, in 2016, I got a note from his orthodontic surgeon in wherever he lives, somewhere in North Carolina, <coughs> saying, huh, he's having some problems. I need to do something. And it turns out that he had poor bone growth from his radiation, um, and he needed a pretty major surgery for that. Where is he now? Working full time. He's busy. He's married. He's the father of two. He has a pretty full life. Both of these patients, I should tell you, have the most amazing positive attitudes. Neither of them is upset, angry, or disturbed about what's happened to them. He remains at risk of thyroid insufficiency, second tumors, early onset cardiovascular disease. He's beyond his alkylator-induced risk of myelodysplasia and secondary AML. By about year 12, that risk is fading rapidly and disappears. But he does travel every two to three years. He still has family in the area to come back for multidisciplinary survivorship care which, interestingly enough, is really not broadly available throughout the country. There are many people who live in places where they literally cannot find a doctor who knows about the problem and knows how to take care of them, so, which is why he travels still. So, interesting. So we have two stories, both patients with late effects. The data suggests that of all survivors of childhood cancer, and Hodgkin's is in some ways the poster child for this, Two-thirds of them have at least one late effect, and one-third of them have at least one major late effect. So why is that particularly Hodgkin's is the poster child? Well, the Hodgkin's is the poster child because we had incredibly high survival rates for a very long time period. You can see data, population-based data on the left. Um, I forget. I think it's actually US. I don't practice don't data as well that I threw in there, showing steady increases in outcome. But I really want you to focus on the right. So SEER, which is a federally funded population program for looking at cancer outcomes in the country, what they show quite clearly, if you look at some of their published data, or web available as well, is you know we've seen steady increases in overall survival from 87% to 91% to 97%. And that's population-based data, which in general is supposed to be less good outcomes than research-based studies. But if you look at population-based research studies, so these were clinical research studies for pediatric Hodgkin's that enrolled all comers, not just certain subsets. So the German trial from 95, by the way, I highlighted the secret of how you tell what year it is, because everyone had a different way of doing it. So that was a study that began in 95. They have 96% overall survival. A follow-up study that they started in 2002, 97% um, overall survival. A children's, sorry, Children's Cancer Group study that was started in 1994, 96%. So kids are actually overall doing better than adults, and we've been doing quite well from a survivorship perspective for over 20 years. Interestingly enough, people know about these late effects. This is a study done looking at 2,700 patients, more adults than kids, but similar treatments over a near 40-year time period, asking, why do people with Hodgkin's lymphoma die? And at that time, 40% of the patients were dying from lymphoma. But 60% were dying primarily from late effects of treatment. So you can see second cancers, myelodysplasia, cardiovascular disease, and so on. But you can't just look at the patients who die, because if you want the survivors, what's happening to the survivors? So this is a list. I decided to put it in alphabetical order, because it was too hard to order it in any other way. Because how likely you are to get any one of these late effects depends in part on the treatment. By the way, I can see all your survivorship genes nodding along. <laughs> it's very nice to say we agree with each other. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, if you get six cycles of ADDD chemotherapy, a very standard regimen that actually completely drives the adult world, you have probably a 1% risk of having acute cardiomyopathy and a slightly higher percent of having a late cardiomyopathy that might not even show up for 10 years. Cardiovascular disease from radiation, early onset um, cardiovascular disease, in their, people in their 40s are ending up complications. Dental caries, we talked about. If you get radiation to this area, you have decreased salivation, increased risk of caries. That's kind of minor. We can deal with that. There are a whole set of things here. And pulmonary fibrosis, for example, the adult regimens all are basically ABDD-based. We can't do that in kids because gliomycin causes more late pulmonary or acute pulmonary fibrosis that then persists over time in kids than it does in adults. So lots of late effects among the survivors. This is a curve that simply shows you what radiation-induced tumors are like, looking at breast cancer and survivors of the German Hodgkin studies in kids that were from the late 70s to the mid-90s. And what you can see in the blue curve is the years from exposure to when the tumors happen. So they don't even start till 10 years later. But if you notice, those curves just look like they're going up. You know, some things we sort of hope go up and then come down again, like alkylator-induced madness, plagiarism, down again. This one, as best as we know, the risk only goes up over time. So that is a very big issue. And this curve sort of is a nice illustration of what's the challenge we're trying to solve. And I'm colorblind, so do forgive me on the colors. So the red curve, I could try using this thing, I guess. So this curve, which I hope is red, shows that the cumulative incidence of relapse is at most 15%. And in kids, that's probably a slightly generous number. And it's all going to happen right in the first few years. Once you make it beyond the first few years, you're not going to have a relapse. However, if you start looking at things like second cancers and cardiovascular events, these curves actually go up a little before 10 years. And kids, most of them are starting around 10 years later. And as we said, they just go up and up and up. So if we have really high survival rates, and we have lots of late effects, the question is, how can we do better? So that's really the goal at the end of this, is to be able to think about that problem together. So but let's switch and do a little background on Hodgkin's lymphoma, since I assume you're not all experts in that to start with. So this is the classic Reed, whoops, meant to do the Reed Sternberg cell of Hodgkin lymphoma that we're going to talk about a little bit more. That's the malignant cell. What are all these other cells? Those are reactive cells. So, the, so we have a tiny amount of malignant cells in the sense of reactive cells, which we come back to. And then we have our friend, Dr. Hodgkin. So Thomas Hodgkin was the man. He drew this beautiful, although somewhat gross, picture of Hodgkin's lymphoma. When what it shows you is that it's really a regional disease because the lymph nodes grow in chains, and Hodgkin spreads through those chains. So most of the spread in Hodgkin's is local. And he published this way back in 1832. I don't know if you guys don't tend to read that literature. Although, in Google Scholar, you can of course find it. Um, so now I'm just going to sort of back up. What is lymphoma? 90% of the people I ask that answer very clearly cancer of the lymph nodes, right? Because that's what we think of. However, it's really important to remember that lymphoma is actually cancer of lymphatic tissue. That's even more important in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma than in Hodgkin's. But so where is Hodgkin's going to start? It's going to start in areas that have nodal tissue. And for Hodgkin's, the primary areas are nodes and spleen. Rarely you find a primary that appears to be bone marrow or bone. 
patterns of spread tend to be in adjacent nodes and an invasion of extra lymphatic tissue. So if you have a big mass in your chest, it could grow into the chest wall. And then hematogenous dissemination in Hodgkin's primarily goes to lung, then bone marrow and bone, rarely liver, and then after that, everything is extremely rare. The items in gray are things you think about when you're dealing with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but less so with Hodgkin's. So the WHO classification, who has a classification for everything, including every pathology of cancer you can imagine, divides Hodgkin's into different than what I learned with my gray hair in medical school, but hopefully what some of you learned in medical school, is that 5% of Hodgkin's is nodular lymphocyte dominant Hodgkin's lymphoma. That's true in both adults and kids, and actually, um, we're not going to talk about that today. It's its own injury. We're going to primarily talk about classical Hodgkin lymphoma, which is the vast majority of patients we see, and the four different subgroups that you probably did learn about in medical school. So I just showed you that picture of the Reed Sternberg cell, which for years was sort of the pathognomonic, actually not pathognomonic, the sine qua non. You can't make a diagnosis of Hodgkin's pathologically without seeing the Reed Sternberg cell, but nobody knew very much about it. However, with microdissection, you know, if you have one cell and a CIA cell, you can't really study that one cell. But with microdissection techniques, people can now actually dissect out and end up with a group Reed Sternberg cells to study. And that's how we know that it's definitely malignant. It's B lineage, as I said, makes up a tiny percent of the tumor mass. And you see EBB genome in some of them, more often in mixed cell, and particularly more often in developing countries. We don't think of it as truly the etiology explanation of Hodgkin's in this country. So what do we know about the molecular pathogenesis? And I promise you I won't dwell here long, this is not my area of expertise either. Um, so you think of a lymph node. So the Reed Sternberg cell was once a perfectly happy cell, B cell that came from the germinal center of a lymph node. Somehow or other, it became malignant. You can find clonal immunoglobulin heavy chain rearrangements, and you can find loss of key transcription factors. There are statements that 1% to 2% of Hodgkin's is of T cell origin. I suspect over time, that's actually going to be disproved, and people are going to recognize it that it's only. And when you look at those hot, those Reed Sternberg cells, what you can find not only are they aberrant in terms of using some C transcription factors, but they have a bunch of markers on their surface that are truly aberrant for a normal terminal sense of cell. And um, I've highlighted in blue CD15 and CD30, because when the pathologists are making a diagnosis, those are two of the common things that they stain for. This, I promise, not explain. Other than to say, remember I said there was that really complex background of a Reed Sternberg cell and all these other cells around it that we just call reactive? There are actually more and more studies of what's going on in that interaction. And it becomes important because if we're someday going to be using targeted therapy, we need to know what the pathways are in order to target them. And we'll talk later about PDL, PD1 inhibitors, which I found when I was looking at. Well, I won't spend the time now, but we'll talk a little later about how we are how you can potentially treat Hodgkin's using pathways, directly against pathways of PD1 inhibition. So going back to more basic stuff, how often do we see Hodgkin's lymphoma in kids? Well, what you can really see, it's pretty rare under the age of 10. And once you hit 10, it starts to just steadily rise. And actually, if you look across all age groups, you can see that it goes up steadily from about 10 to 40. And then it primarily disappears and then comes back again in older adults and it's probably biologically not quite the same disease. In the US, you can see there are many fewer pediatric cases than adult cases each year, but there are also a lot fewer deaths. I actually had to make up that number, I will tell you guys, I couldn't find it anywhere, but I just went with, okay, if we call it 96 to 97% overall survival, how many kids should be dying each year? 
here. So take that number with a complete grain of salt. I should have put that in my disclosures. <laughs> well, I made it up. Uh, <laughs> so there's increased incidence in industrialized countries, and the nodular sourcing subtype is the most common that you see in So now let's talk about what the treatment options are, because there's been treatment for Hodgkin's for a very long time period. So the first use, published use of radiation for Hodgkin's was in 1902, and a physician named Pusey published a paper called Cases of Sarcoma and Hodgkin's Disease Treated by Exposure to X-rays. So they were using radiation in some way to get some degree of response. Then in the 30s through the 60s, really the whole field of radiation was advancing. Um, and it's only in the early 60s that the first papers were published saying they could not just get responses, but you could actually cure some patients, which is what the Kaplan paper says in 1962. We can cure some patients with low-risk Hodgkin lymphoma with radiation alone. But as the field progressed, radiation became more widespread in its use. The other thing that happened is people began to recognize some of the late effects of radiation. And interesting, I hadn't realized this until I looked back in preparation for this talk. Those papers were coming out as early as sometime in the 1970s. And I knew there were a lot more of them in the 1980s. So what happened in the 1980s in kids is we kind of said there was a whole shift in the field, which instead of radiation only, like that patient I was telling you about and reserving chemotherapy for relapse, we routinely gave both chemotherapy and radiation together. And once combined modality came to standard of care, we no longer had to do splenectomies because you were going to get chemotherapy, so if there was a spot in the spleen, who cared about it? Um, and we also were able to decrease the radiation from that extended field, from the first case, to the involved field, the second case that I discussed with you. And not only were the fields smaller, but the doses were lower. Now, that would be great if we knew there was a dose response curve for second tumors, but we actually don't know that. We're pretty sure that smaller fields will decrease the incidence because there's less tissue at risk. <clears throat> so the 1980s, lots of pediatric studies looking at combined modality treatment. And we're also getting a little smarter, as I'll tell you, with chemo and tailoring our chemo to the risk group of the patient. And in the 2000s, particularly in the adult world, the concept of involved node radiation. So as radiation advanced becomes more conformal, more targeted techniques, radiation oncologists quite recently said, well, if you want us to radiate, why don't we find the smallest possible amount to radiate? And we still don't know yet what that's going to mean, because maybe that's also going to mean you skipped a very important area right next to the measurable tumor that we needed to radiate as well. And really, the question we're going to talk about today is who still needs radiation? If you look at chemotherapy, and this is a prettier slide because somebody else helped to get it started for me with better skills in PowerPoint. The first treatment of chemotherapy for Hodgkin's was back in 1942 with nitrogen mustard. Meat still available today, at least some of the time, but not all the time. Um, in 1949, a paper treating 50 patients with Hodgkin's with nitrogen mustard and getting responses. We mentioned 1950s for successful reports of radiation. And then along came what changed the field of oncology forever, with pediatric ALL being one of the most important ways to figure this out, which is combination chemotherapy, put multiple drugs together. So MOC was the regimen developed at MTI and published in 1964. And then DeVita from the NCF showed that you can actually cure Hodgkin's using combination chemotherapy. In Italy, Dr. Bonadonna developed ADVD, which is probably the worldwide standard more than any other regimen, particularly in the adult world in the 70s. And then Skip ahead a few years, the first new agent for Hodgkin's lymphoma since probably the 60s to early 70s was the approval of Brentuximab, 
targeted drug that we'll talk about, and then another drug that we'll talk, uh, talk about some other ones that are targeted against one pathways, which was as an 14-ish. But in the meantime, lots of pediatric studies are being done, and the list of effective regimens for Hodgkin's lymphoma is really quite long. However, I just mentioned the Euronet trials, which started with the German trials, and it grew, and now is the Euronet trial. They took a regimen, Opacop, which had procarbazine in it. So every boy was definitely going to be infertile. Girls might be at risk of early menopause, and everybody was going to have a risk of myelodysplasia that was several percent. And successfully did a series of clinical research studies where they're actually able to completely eliminate procarbazine without any decrements in overall survival. Now, in one of the transitions, when they were substituting topicide for the first cycle, they found that they weren't doing so well, and they had to play with the dose, but they got it back where they wanted it. And more recently, they've been able to use dacarbazine instead of procarbazine, and there is no infertility with that regimen. And the total dose of alkylators now is below that known to cause infertility. Um, so this is an example of the studies over time. So really, the 1990s were about developing new chemotherapy regimens or twisting the old ones that were tailored to the risks of the patient and started and really worked hard to avoid total dose <coughs> significant late effects. So let's deal with a couple cases and use them as examples, different from my first cases. So now 14-year-old comes into her pediatrician's office. She's had a painless firm neck mass. She was seen a month ago, and she was given a course of oral antibiotics. Nothing changed. And this time, feeling the node now, it's pretty hard. It's five centimeters. It doesn't move. Pretty worried about that one. Off to the surgeon for a biopsy. And what do you find? So what you see on the, oops, I'm going to do it again. Find my little button. Here is this is a, a low power view. And you see these broad pink bands of sclerosis. And you don't see anything that looks like a normal lymph node. The architecture is gone. When you go to high power, now you can see what we were talking about before, which is a few of these unique large cells Reed Sternberg cells, and lots of this mixed inflammatory background. And the pathologist would typically stain this with CD15 and about to prove that it's Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then in terms of which kind of classical Hodgkin's lymphoma it is, we don't see lymphocyte in kids. So I'm not sure I've actually ever seen a patient with that. And the most common sign we see, which is what this patient has, is nodular screws and Hodgkin's lymphoma. So your next question is, I know what it is, where is it? So the patient has a two kinds of staging evaluations, a CT scan, which gives you an anatomic picture. And this is a diagnostic CT. So you have to you know, give the IV and the oral contrast and give enough of a dose of radiation to be able to measure the size of things. And a PET scan. The PET may be a PET CT scan. But what now what you're going to be looking for is areas of metabolic, increased metabolic activity that is different than what you expect. And we'll come back to what that means. Or I can have it right here. Which is, there is, along with the lumps you see that match the CT scan, you see symmetric linear uptake in the posterior neck. When we first came out with PET scans, the new med doctors said, oh my god, this gives us so much disease. Now we know that's brown fat. So we got a new test, but we had to learn that not all positive results are real disease. And the other thing is this patient has a little focus in the axilla, but there aren't any lymph nodes that are enlarged, and the focus actually doesn't really match up with the axilla. Well, I mean, with the lymphness in the axilla, this patient shaved. She got some muscle irritation. That's a very positive, very sensitive test. So you have to be careful. Whoops, I'm testing this thing too much. When um, evaluating what the PET scan is telling you, and bone marrows in this case aren't needed because the patient has so little disease. We don't even bother doing them. The higher probability is low. Well. So 
all good staging systems for cancer help you do one of two things or sometimes both. One, they identify prognostic factors. But once you identify prognostic factors, what you really want to do is use those to evaluate and treat differently so that they become treatment factors and you've treated away the difference. And that's almost not fully happened, but to a large extent happened in Hodgkin's lymphoma. And this just shows your basic set. Patient with stage one disease has one area, one side of the diaphragm. Stage two, multiple areas, one side. Stage three, both sides. And stage four is distant spread. So this is just the uh, word version of the Ann Arbor staging system. And what does this patient have? She has multiple sites on one side of the diaphragm. She does not have any of those B symptoms, the systemic finding. It's not bulky, and she doesn't have any extension outside of the lymph, lymph nodes themselves. So overall, this is a patient with not only low stage disease, but also low risk. What do I mean by low risk disease? Well, it would be great if I could tell you, here is the list of things, and here's how you interpret them. But there are no national or international standards for assigning patients to low, intermediate, or high risk, or however you're going to go about doing that. Every staging system I know of, or probably treatment assignment position I know of, uses stage, every single one of them. Most of them consider B symptoms in the sense that if you were stage 2A, you might get lesser therapy than patient with stage 2B. Many of them look at how bulky the masses are, because it is more than a third of the chest um, wide on a regular chest X-ray. Many of them think that external extension is what we need more treatment for. Some of them look at sites of disease. And it's been shown both in adults and kids that if you have two sites of disease or fewer, that's an incredibly favorable subgroup, but not everyone adjusts their treatment on that patient. And there has been data back and forth as whether or not SED rate matters in some So this patient, however we use it, whichever considerations, has low stage, low risk disease. If she had walked in the door in 1980, she would have been treated with radiation only. That could all high dose extended field. She would have had a staging lap to take her, find out if her spleen was involved before her radiation. And chemotherapy at that point was primarily reserved for relapse. And was actually really good at salvaging relapse. In 1995, this patient walked in the door. We would have moved on to combined modality treatment. We would have picked one of the many chemotherapy regimens available, given two to four cycles, reduced the dose of radiation, reduced the field. Again, very good outcomes. And even if you relapse after that, you're still a really high chance of being salvaged. So now it's more intensive with intensive chemo, a stem cell transplant, and radiation if you haven't already had it. So where are we in 2017? We're continuing our curve of taking a different paradigm, which is called response-adaptive therapy. So this patient would likely get four cycles of chemotherapy. Pick the regimen again that you want to use. Um, and these current regimens, as I mentioned, all have fewer chemotherapy-induced late effects. Um, look at response by both PET and CT after the first two cycles. And then based on the response, different studies have either minimized the amount of radiation by decreasing the dose, or other studies that we'll talk about in the sum of have actually eliminated the radiation completely. So this is a good example of one of the first response-based treatment studies that was done in Germany starting in 1995. And what you can see, oops, I keep hitting the wrong button. Here on the left, this patient would have fallen into their treatment group one would have actually gotten only two cycles of chemotherapy, then would have had a CT. If the CT looked normal, that would have been a complete response and no radiation. If there were still abnormalities on the CT, would have gotten 20 gay of radiation, plus the boost, now they're up to 35, so a fair amount of radiation. And you can see for the higher treatment groups, they simply give more cycles of chemotherapy. 
And what this shows is the outcome of those patients, where there's no statistically significant difference between patients with a good response who didn't get irradiated in yellow and those who had a less good response and did get radiation in blue. Um, and I thought I had here uh, that 20% of these patients didn't get radiation, so we were still radiating the vast majority of patients. So fast forward about 20 years, and now we're in the, one of their successor trials, which is now a larger group now called Euronet. Um, and they've evolved the chemotherapy. Remember I said they got rid of procarbazine to get rid of that whole group of late effects. They actually made the treatment more complicated, more visits, more not more cycles, but a lot more visits to receive the therapy. And now they're assessing response by both PET and CT, so not just anatomic. And by the way, we often know high chances to scar behind to an abnormal CT, even though you're not really going to be able to relapse, and PET, which is a functional scan. And now what you can see is there's, again, absolutely no difference, no higher risk of relapse if you were a good responder who didn't get radiation or a less good responder who did. But the other thing that's really important, they're now eliminating radiation in two-thirds of these low-risk patients. So tremendous progress on the same chemo backbone with a series of clinical trials that have shown this. So, but within that, I forgot to show you this. There's something funny about this. Here's a really good subgroup of patients, right? This is their lowest risk group. But their event-free survival is actually below 90%. So more than 10% of those patients are relapsing and needing salvage therapy. So if you try to think of that first curve of balancing late effects and risk of relapse, maybe this one isn't quite right. And they had that concern. They went back and reanalyzed. And what they found is within this, um, the treatment prognostic, or the treatment assignment system they were using, they were really two very different groups of patients. They had one group of patients who had a metric survival about 93%, and then they had a different group of patients whose event-free survival was about 77%. So that's less than what you expect for treatment group two and three patients. Why was that? Because these were patients who either had a high SED rate or bulk of disease. In this country, we never would have considered that little chemotherapy for somebody with bulk. And whether or not we would have considered the, the set rate in the decision making would vary in different research groups. So what are they gonna do in their subsequent studies that are ongoing now? For this group that's doing incredibly well, they are actually using the same basic approach of two cycles of chemotherapy, but they're trying, but, and using PET and CP response, but they're not 100% sure that 93% is good enough. So if actually you're a good responder, you're gonna get one more cycle of chemo. And if you're a poor responder, you're just gonna get your radiation. It'll be very interesting to see the results of that study. So now we will continue to a different patient. So now you have the same, four, another 14-year-old girl who walks in the door, who again had a lump in her neck, again didn't get better with antibiotics. And now she has things that really concern you, daily fevers and drenching night sweats. Send her for a chest x-ray that day because you're already worried about this patient having lymphoma and you can see that she's got a big anterior mediastinal mass. So she quickly goes, actually gets a, her staging workup done even before her biopsy, because people are pretty sure about what she has. And what you can see on the staging workup, that mediastinum is way too full. If you remember, it could be a little skinny concave thing, not a big, fat, lumpy, bumpy convex thing. And then if you do the PET scan, you can see all the disease in her neck on both sides and coming down into the upper mediastinum. So, She's also going to start chemotherapy, picking one of the appropriate regimens for someone with more advanced disease. 
And she's also going to get scans again after the first two cycles. And what you can see here is that's looking a heck of a lot more like a normal anterior mediastinum. A little lumpy, bumpy, a little convex, but the majority of the bulk is gone. And you can actually measure the response by looking at things like the product of the perpendicular diameters to say how much did it shrink. And we're generally looking for 70 to 80% shrinkage, call that good. And you can see that her PET scan also looks a heck of a lot better. But then you're saying, but is there still some stuff in her neck? And how come her upper mediastinum is still a little bit positive? But well, turns out rating PET scans is a real challenge and inter-rated reliability is very poor. So what was developed was a Doville scoring system, one, two, three, four, five. And we now know that using the scoring system, you can actually understand response a lot better and up to Doville three, the same, in other words, nothing higher than the liver as background. So you, have a, you have an internal control you're judging against. Three or less is considered a good response. So, so now she's had two cycles of chemo, and she's had a good response. Um, so what are we going to do with her overall? Well, there are a lot of actually options. And the most recent approach to therapy has all been balanced on what was done in the 90s with combined modality treatment with one of many chemotherapy regimens and low-dose involved with radiation. I'm not going to run through all the regimens. You don't need to memorize the alphabet soup. Um, Sarah knows it. She can decide to see chapter and verse. But, Overall, we're talking about stellar prognoses. More than 95% of these patients are going to do extremely well in the long run. 80%-ish will be cured by their initial therapy, and about 80% of those who will relapse will be cured by their salvage therapy. We've now looked at 75 consecutive auto transplants for Hodgkin's lymphoma in our institution or numbers like that. We had two deaths from treatment complications and one death from Hodgkin's lymphoma. So that's an incredibly high salvage rate, and I can't think of a single patient who we intended to transplant but could never get good enough disease control. So really good salvage outcomes, but then you end up with a lot more chemo, infertility, radiation, da 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 da, da, da. So the COB, Children's Oncology Group, ran a very important study that's now been closed and published looking at patients with intermediate risk Hodgkin's, which is actually, as they defined it, was a very broad group of patients with Hodgkin's probably more than two-thirds of the total population. So it wasn't a whole population study, but it was a pretty big sector of the patients in the middle. And what they did was they actually tested does response-based therapy work. So now we're going to look at the patients who, were, who ended up in their favorable response arm. And the way, now this is another thing, everybody defines response differently. So it's really hard to compare one study to the next. But in this case, every patient got a CT after their first two cycles of chemotherapy and they looked to see how much it shrank. If it shrank a lot, then they were eligible after their next two cycles of chemotherapy to have their response assessed by both PET and CT scan after four cycles, and then use that to identify patients who were in their best group who were randomized to receive radiation or not. So now they're not giving radiation by response, they're actually randomizing the use of radiation. And what's shown over here is for patients who were random, oops, back again, who were randomized to receive radiation or not, there's no difference. These two curves are completely overlying each other for overall survival and no significant differences in event-free survival. So you could safely omit radiation in patients who, this is a subgroup of patients because it wasn't all comers, who had a very good response with two time point assessments. And they were able to omit radiation in not quite half their patients. That was a pretty good achievement. Um, what happened to the patients who were down here who had a slow early response? 
they were randomized to get the standard treatment for cyclopenem on radiation with or without additional chemotherapy called DECA. And I'll start with what I'm really supposed to tell you, which is when they looked at event-free survival and overall survival for the randomized patients, they did not find any differences, which was here, in the omission of radiation, it was good. In the addition of chemotherapy, that's now a bad, because you weren't able to improve things for this group of patients. However, like all clinical researchers, you have to find something that does make a difference. So they did a retrospective subgroup analysis. And for any of you who did biostatistics, you understand that's a very risky thing to do, because you're not powered to find what you're looking for. And you may find something true, and you may not. But they looked only at patients who had a pet at that early time point. And then they looked at patients who were pet positive at the early time point versus pet negative. And the two things that you can see here is whether or not you get the chemotherapy, additional chemotherapy, the blue patients who were pet negative at their early time point do better than the yellow, yellow patients who do less well and who are still pet positive. But then when they compared within the pet positives, now in very small groups, they, and with a p-value of 0.05, getting the chemotherapy looks like it does better than not getting the chemo. But I wouldn't take this as gospel yet. Multiple other studies, both in adults and kids, have not yet shown that intensifying chemotherapy improves the outcome of these patients. But I guarantee you, we will keep trying because we want to do better for these kids. So, so what do we know to put those two stories together about the omission of radiation and response-based therapy? Well, we have lots of studies, the first point, where we've got strong evidence that you have no decrease in event-free survival, i.e. you don't get more relapses in low-risk patients who have a favorable response and have radiation omitted. So that we're 100% certain. We have a few studies that I didn't go over with you that were actually randomized studies done in the 1990s that say if you omit radiation from good responders, you can maintain the same overall survival, although both studies that I'm thinking about were stopped early because of an increased relapse rate. And that's because they have really good salvage therapy, so you can treat wave difference. And this is sort of the crux of the challenge. Less radiation for all, but more salvage therapy for some. How do you make a decision for an individual patient? And how do you power research studies to try to address that question? We don't really have the answers to that yet. The one study I just mentioned showed you had no decrease in event free survival for intermediate risk patients, a broad group, um, with good response, but very tight definitions of good response, and almost half the patients not getting radiation. And then that the German study that's not yet published, it looks like no decrease in event free survival for all patients if you assess response by PET and CT. And they were now in an entire population, they eliminated radiation in half the patients. So that sounds pretty good. But is it really good enough? And I don't think the answer is good enough yet. Because the problem is, we are still radiating a lot of our patients, right? Half patients getting radiation doesn't feel right if we're curing 97% of them, right? That means there's a lot of patients who are getting over-treatment. Um, and one strategy we could take is we could just say, you know, we're done. We can't keep studying this. We just got to leap ahead. We're going to stop using radiation or use it under incredibly limited circumstances. We know we're over-treating a lot of patients. So if we eliminate the radiation, we eliminate the risk of second tumors, that's good. Cardiovascular disease, that's good. However, some number of patients will be less. Exactly how many, you could probably model in a sensitivity analysis. And those who relapse are going to need, can still be cured. You're still probably going to end up with the exact same overall survival, 
but they're going to have a lot more late effects, more chemo-late effects, chemo-late effects of their high-dose therapy with beam, late effects of the radiation. So leaping ahead, that's not generally how oncologists do this. Don't the research study building on previous results. That's how most of our progress has been made. So what other choices do we have? Well, why don't we just intensify the chemotherapy, right? We could probably get rid of more radiation if we just intensified the chemo. Ooh, but go back to that curve I was talking about earlier. Now you're maybe just you're going to shift from radiation-based late effects to chemotherapy-based late effects. And I might think that having a second breast cancer, I, probably pretty curable, is worse than being infertile, but you might think differently. So how do you, you know, you can't, it's very hard to make those kinds of decisions. Um, so, but that would be one option. Another is, well, let's just get better at measuring response. And I should have put on here, but I didn't. We don't need new measures of response. Maybe the first step is just actually agree on how we're going to define response. Because to the degree on how we can define response, we can learn from each other's studies better. But also, maybe we do need to look at new measures of response. Maybe we already know that if you wait to do your PET scan after three cycles of chemotherapy, almost everybody's a good responder, right? So maybe instead of looking after two cycles, we should look after one cycle. And there's studies being done with that now. But we don't currently have a tool by which we know exactly how to do this. Then there's the whole question of, why don't we just use new drugs? And there are targeted agents. So this is one that we actually can start, start to study. So I've now been briefly talking about two of the new drugs, so I think I'm watching the clock correctly. So brentuximab vidotin, I love all the names that we get for these things, is actually a anti-CD30. Remember we said these abnormal reed Sternberg cells express CD30 on the surface. And the first development of this drug, they just took anti-CD30 antibody, kind of like rituximab, which is an anti-CD20, which is used for a million different diseases. But it turns out, if, although anti-CD20 works really well to kill B cells, anti-CD30 does nothing for the reed Sternberg cell cells, so they've got absolutely no results. Thankfully, um, they actually didn't throw the drug out, but they said, hmm, why don't we use it as a target for delivering therapy? So they actually added three or four molecules of a chemical substance that's actually very much like zincristine. It's a microtubule inhibitor. So now this became a drug that delivered chemotherapy directly to the cells of interest. And very few other cells express CD30. So the off-target um, side effects were quite low. And that's this monomethyl or satin is the drug they were using. And what do we know about that? I love the name of this. This is what's called a waterfall plot. A waterfall plot, you take patients who are on a clinical trial and you line up their responses from bad to good or good to bad. But basically what you see here, now remember, this is a phase one study where you're just testing how much of the drug we can give. The only patients who go on these studies have very refractory disease. You know, they've blown through all known effective therapy. They may have had other experimental regimens. So a waterfall plot where almost every single patient has a response, and it's just a matter of how big, the, how good the response is, is really impressive. So really impressive phase one data. Um, and this is what some of the studies look like if you look at the, with the patients who were treated. Now remember, they're not being cured, they're being treated. So it's a very active agent in highly refractory disease, but we're not seeing cures with it alone. So that's one drug that we and then there's a whole bunch of drugs. Remember that lovely slide with all those pathways that I promised I wouldn't talk about very much? So PD-1 is one of those pathways, and it turns out PD-1 inhibitors are being developed right and left and have been shown to work in a bunch of um, adult cancer types. And 
in classical Hodgkin lymphoma, pathologically you're dealing with a failure of an immune response to take out these abnormal cells. And a lot of it leads to, those pathways lead to overexpression of the PDL1 ligands. And I'm not going to talk you through all of this. And so that if you can target that pathway, maybe you're predisposed to having a good therapy. I should mention other very active pathways in Hodgkin's lymphoma. Targeted agents have done nothing before. So it's not that this is definitely going to work, but it's possible. Um, so oops, let me go to the next one. Um, so this is actually a large-scale <coughs> plot a few years later for another drug, this one called nivolumab, that's targeting the PD-1 pathway. And again, you see amazing responses in highly refractory patients. Um, however, there are more side effects of this drug, and this drug was only approved, I think, in 2014, so we know a little bit less about it. And then these are other drugs that are all targeting this pathway, skipped right through. So if you put this together, what do we know? So for mentoximabidotin, we have lots of data about the single agent. There's growing adult data in combination with cytotoxic chemotherapy. Sarah knows well, there are very limited trials in pediatrics. Um, the Chokes Oncology Group was running one trial that had both a phase one and a phase two component. We didn't know how to give this drug in combination. This was a combination drug. And I think your patient got the last slot on the phase one portion of the study. Um, and we had to struggle to get her on. But the amazing thing is, this is a kid with primary refractory Hodgkin's lymphoma that blew through how many different regimens? Three? Three or four. Three or four. We then get her on the trial with this experimental agent. She had a phenomenal response and went on to get her transplant for radiation. How many years later are we? Due to come in this afternoon. Yeah, like just remarkable. So we have several ongoing pediatric trials, one through our Pediatric Hodgkin's Consortium, another through the Children's Oncology Group, looking at substituting brentuximab for one of the drugs in an upfront regimen. Um, and the goal is to see, can we get higher response rates, which can then translate to more omission of radiation, and does that benefit patients in the long run? Although currently, the studies are primarily looking at tolerability. How toxic is it to do it this way? Because we don't know yet. And in the adult world, they had definite problems with combinations of chemotherapy and overlapping toxicity. The PD-1 inhibitors, they're a lot newer. We know they work well as a single agent. There's nothing going on yet in terms of cytotoxic chemotherapy combinations. But you can see where these drugs may end up being game changers. We're not going to know that for at least another 10 years. So what have I hoped to tell you during this discussion? One, cure rates are insanely high, 97%. Actually, we've looked at institutional data, and this is not cutting our horn, but just looking at you know, one institution. We actually think it's 99% in the patients who we've treated at our institution. I can remember, literally, a couple patients who died from transplant-related complications, as we discussed. One patient who died of Hodgkin's long before we were actually doing routine transplant for everybody, and another who died of Hodgkin's after transplant. But that's it. You know, these kids are not dying of their Hodgkin's. Um, our current chemotherapy regimens, we've done two things. We've tailored how much chemo you get to your risk group to try to make these treatment factors instead of prognostic factors. We are tailoring the regimen. There's a lot of work being done to try to make sure the chemotherapy regimens are less likely to cause late effects than in the past. We've walked through a series of trials looking about how to eliminate radiation in a series of clinical trials using some version of response-based therapy, although we still need to move forward in that direction. But the bottom line for me, and certainly our radiation oncologist feels this way, she hates to radiate patients. We're still radiating way too many patients. If you're carrying that many, 
Half-getting radiation is just unacceptable. Our institutional standard of care, we've adopted the German elite hop-back backbone regimen. And what we do now is when you have your response assessment, we sit down with each and every patient, a radiation oncologist and one of our lymphoma docs together. A lot of times we have a lot of these patients. And we have a risk-benefit discussion with patients and families. There are some that we say, lots of data, very clear you don't need radiation. Those are easy. Then there's some patients where we say, you know, we really think from what we know now you still need radiation. But then there's this group in the middle that I call the gray zone. We've got adult data, we've got one clinical trial, we've got that, that clinical trial. And that's where we really need to have, and what we try to have is really thoughtful risk-benefit discussions with patients and families. And because these are teenagers, they often need to be real participants in it. So it's not just the parents deciding for their child. But how do you in your head trade off a risk of relapse that's going to happen sometime in the next couple of years with the risk of a late effect that's not going to happen for 10, 20, 30 years? What amazes me is people seem like they can do that. And in all these discussions I've had where we sort of talked about the greatness of our recommendations, one patient and her family chose radiation. And what they said is, we're not going to be able to live every day with ourselves if we're worried about the Hodgkin's coming back again. Although we do have to remind them, even when we give the radiation, depending on your risk group, there's a 10 to 15% risk of relapse. But it's going to go up. So one's chosen it, the rest have not. I'm trying to engage some of our outcomes folks who study communication so we can figure out what are the effective elements of communication around these topics. We don't know that yet. Um, and then what we're looking forward to, and I, we can't use these new drugs in combination as a standard of care. We need a lot more research to know how to do that. But I would really love it when someone else is coming to talk about high lymphoma in 20 years, and we know exactly how to incorporate these agents into the radiation. So, love to take any questions.